you got your Bibles, uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Um, so typically, we do have uh, you know, children's ministry uh, on Sunday mornings. Uh, this morning, we're giving our volunteers a, a day off, especially since we have so many people out of town. Uh, and so, uh, knowing that our kiddos are here, uh, I know they're going to be very patient, and I'm going to keep it relatively brief uh, this morning. So uh, Isaiah 53 is where we're going to be. It might not be uh, your typical Christmas Eve text. If you know Isaiah 53, maybe your ears perked up and you went, hmm, that's an interesting choice. Uh, but it's, it's actually very relevant because when we're asking the question, why was Jesus born? I think this passage hits the bullseye when it comes to answering that question. So I hope that uh, by the time we're done with our time together this morning, you'll understand why this is actually an excellent text. Uh, to consider uh, on Christmas Eve. So uh, Isaiah chapter 53, I'm going to read the text, uh, and I'm going to pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll just dive right in, okay? Here's what the word of the Lord says. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our, for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let me pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the gift of your son. And Lord, they're the most incredible, amazing breathtaking realities in the universe are contained right here in the passage that we just read. But, but God, we need your help to see because we get so distracted 
by trivial things throughout the week. And, and many of us who are familiar with some of these things can get so familiar that they become commonplace. Oh God, may we never lose our sense of wonder at what you have done in sending your son and what Jesus has done. Help us to see with, with clear eyes this morning, oh God. Help us to understand just the great depths of your love in the cross of Christ, in the gospel. Help me to clearly proclaim Christ. And I pray that everyone here this morning would leave just thinking, what an amazing God you are. How wonderful your word is. How beautiful Jesus is. That's my desire. So help me in my weakness. I pray that in your name. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 53 once again picks up on this theme of the servant of the Lord or the Messiah. If you were here last week, uh, we talked a bit about that. Isaiah was writing to provide hope to an exiled, humiliated people. The people of Israel had been sent into exile for their sin, um, but uh, Isaiah was writing uh, to give them hope that exile was not the end of the story for them. Uh, the, the, the hope that Isaiah speaks of is centered on this the servant of the Lord, the Messiah that would come. And the message of Isaiah 40 to 55 in particular, this section, is, is that despite our sin, God will save his sinful people. And Isaiah chapter 53 shows us how that's possible. The main point of the sermon this morning is really simple. Jesus was born to die for sinners. Jesus was born to die for sinners. Isaiah 53 helps us to behold Jesus as the humble servant, the sacrificial servant, and the vindicated servant. And those will be our three points this morning. And so uh, I want to direct our attention to the, the first three verses there where we see Jesus as the humble servant. In verse 2, uh, first uh, Isaiah says that the servant of the Lord is, is unimpressive. Right? He's not coming with pomp and circumstance and royal robes. He, he doesn't look like some superhero. He's largely ignored and not even noticed. It says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and know beauty, that we should desire him. He was just an ordinary Jewish man born into a humble family. And Jesus didn't walk around with like one of those glowing halos like you see in those old photos. He was just a normal man. If you would have passed him by on the street, you wouldn't have given him a second glance. And because he was so ordinary, he was rejected as the Messiah, as the Son of God. The Jewish authorities considered Jesus a blasphemer for even claiming to be the Son of God. They esteemed Him not or regarded Him not. Even the crowds who followed Him and were amazed at His signs and His wonders, ultimately they turned on Him. They were the very ones calling out, Crucify Him, crucify Him. That's why Isaiah asks in verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is very few. Very few believed. And only those whose eyes the Holy Spirit opens will actually believe. Because for the rest, the veil of unbelief lies over their eyes and only the Holy Spirit can remove it. And so because Jesus was not what everyone expected, he was rejected. And verse 3 makes that clear. It says he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from men from whom men hide their faces. Like, like people didn't even want to look at him. That's how, that's how uh, unpleasant he was to look at. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was fully God 
and he became fully man, and he came and dwelt among us. He came to his own people, but his own people didn't even recognize him. John chapter 1, verse 10 and 11 says that he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. No one expected the Son of God to come humbly and in weakness, and no one expected the Son of God to suffer. Does anybody remember the, the show Undercover Boss? Anybody watch that? I loved that show back when it came out years and years ago. The basic premise is that the CEO of, of a company uh, kind of disguises him or herself as an employee in training, and then they, uh, they go and they, and they uh, film it like they're being filmed as a, as a new hire to see if they can make it in the company, and the employees have no idea this is actually their CEO or their boss, and at the end of the episode, uh, they do the big reveal, like, oh, I was the CEO all along, and usually they give them prizes or you know, gifts because of their kindness or because of their hard work, things like that. And imagine, though, imagine a CEO like being berated by his own employee or being dismissed by her own employee. Like how like shocking and embarrassing would that be at the end of the show for that employee? There, were even one, there was even one or two episodes I can recall where the employees weren't exactly doing what they were supposed to do and kind of got confronted uh, at the end. You know, uh, it's possible to be very close to Jesus at Christmas and to miss him. Now, a lot of people did as he walked on the earth. Many people did. I, I, I want to just give some exhortation real quick for the distracted and then some, some encouragement for the despairing uh, as we consider Jesus as the humble servant. Um, and even during Advent, when we're supposed to meditate on Jesus' arrival, it's easy to be distracted by other things that appear more shiny on the surface. And Christmas is an invitation to look to Jesus to behold the beauty of His humility and His selfless love. So I would encourage you today, tomorrow, even throughout the season to slow down. I know that there are meals to cook. There's last minute errands to run. Maybe some of you still haven't bought presents for your spouse. Probably the men in the room, right? you still got some last minute presents to buy. There's houses to clean. And that's all fine. But in light of eternity... How much is all of that ultimately going to matter? At the end of the day, how much does that really matter? So take some time tonight or tomorrow to, to, to read Luke chapter 1 or 2 or both slowly and prayerfully. And, and as you do, ask God, open my eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Jesus, help me see you in all of your glory in your word. That's the most important thing you could do with your time. I also think that Jesus as the humble servant provides encouragement for the despairing. Jesus knows sorrow. He knows rejection. And He knows grief. He's not out of touch. We don't worship a God who's up in His ivory tower and completely disconnected uh, and unable to sympathize with us. Jesus is our high priest who's able to sympathize with our weakness in every single way. So have you been grieving this year? Have you had loss? He knows what it is to grieve. He knows what it is to suffer loss. Have you been rejected by others? 
Maybe, maybe there's even rejection within your own family and you're going to feel that pain acutely during the Christmas season as you're around family. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected by his own family members. His family thought he was crazy. Maybe your family thinks you're crazy. Well, guess what? Jesus knows exactly what that's like. Have you had to endure many sorrows? So has Jesus. Hebrews 2.18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He can help you in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your struggle. You're not alone. And if you're a believer, he's interceding for you right now. Jesus' humility ultimately took him all the way to the humiliation of the cross. And that kind of leads into our second point. Jesus is the humble servant and he's also the sacrificial servant. Look with me at verses 4 uh, through 6. This, this is really the heart of the passage and the heart of why Jesus came. It's why Jesus' birth is good news of great joy that will be for all peoples. I want to point out three things here in these three verses that you need to understand. The first thing I want to point out is that you have sinned against God. You have sinned against God. Uh, there in verse 6, the first line says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way. And in verse 5, Isaiah describes sin as transgression and then iniquity. That word transgression is willful rebellion. That's what it means. Uh, we don't have a king. We don't know what it's like to live under a king uh, anymore. Uh, but most of you probably understand that if you willfully rebel against a king, that's not going to go over very well for you, right? That's called treason. And usually, like especially back in the day, that meant you were getting put to death, right? If you committed treason against a king. Sin is willful rebellion against God because deep down we know what God requires and yet we do it anyways. And rebellion is serious because what it's really doing is it's challenging God's authority. Like parents, you know exactly what it's like. What's like? Think back to those moments where you've told your child to do something and they look you right in the eye and they do the very thing you just told them not to do right in front of you, right? What if it? They're, they're kind of challenging your authority. Like, all right, is mom and dad going to follow through? What's going to happen? I'm going to test it out here, right? And that's what we do every time we sin against God. We're challenging his authority. We're essentially saying to God, I, I know what you said, but I want to be in charge. And that's kind of a preposterous thing to do for, for fallible, weak creatures who are mortal, right? To the one who gives us our very breath, who sustains life, who causes the sun to come up and to go down every single day. It's, it's what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they disregarded God's command to eat the fruit of the tree. It's the essence of all sin. But Isaiah also says that sin is iniquity. Uh, iniquity has a little bit different of a connotation. Uh, it's not so much, doesn't so much refer to an action as it does to uh, a twisting and corrupting of what is good. That's what sin does. Sin twists and corrupts good things. Whenever we sin, we're taking God's good design and his gifts, and we're distorting them in a way that he never intended. For example, just one example, uh, when, when someone extorts somebody else for money, 
They're taking a good gift, which is God's provision of finances, and they're using it for purposes that God never intended. They're using it not to glorify God, but for selfish gain. And here's the deal. Sin leads to brokenness, and it separates us from God. It leads to brokenness, and it separates us from God. My, my front yard is filled with leaves. I love that we have this beautiful tree in the front yard. It's this huge tree, and I love it almost the entire year except for December and January because, my gosh, it's like a leaf apocalypse in my yard, and they fall and fall, and last night it rained on top of them, so it was a big soppy mess, and we literally had like leaves like stuck to the car like all the way around. I had to go out with a towel and wipe leaves off. But anyways, I digress. Here's the point I want to make. If I went outside with with our vacuum cleaner to go and try to take care of those leaves and pick those leaves up, what would happen to my vacuum cleaner? It would break. Why? That's not for that. That's right. Vacuum cleaners are not for taking up leaves in the front yard. That's not what it was designed to do. And you and me are not designed to be our own God and to transgress His commands. Just like it's not going to go well for your vacuum cleaner, if you try to vacuum leaves in your front yard, it's not going to go well when you rebel against God and His commands and try to go your own way. Sin always leads to brokenness. And then the problem is that we know it. We feel that our lives are broken. We feel this void. And so then what do we do? We don't turn to God and go, Okay, God, I'm ready. I'll surrender to you. No, we, we go and we look for solutions to fix it ourselves, and we just keep uh, digging a hole deeper and deeper and deeper, deeper as we're trying to dig our way out. Sin leads to brokenness that we can't fix. And sin also, worst of all, it separates us from God. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says that it is your sin that has made a separation between you and God. God is a righteous judge, the Bible says, who is indignant over sin every day. And I mean, just going back to our analogy we just said, parents, you know that feeling, right? Going back to that analogy when your child like just defies you to your face and there's that kind of that anger that wells up in you, you're like, I can't believe you just did that, right? Because that's that justice. We know it's wrong. We know it's wrong. We know it ought to be corrected. And I mean, in light of in light of how often we constantly rebel against God, it's amazing how patient God is, isn't it? Like the fact that um, we provoke Him daily to His face. Uh, I mean, as you look at the culture around us, uh, you know, and, and all the thing, all the ways in which God is being provoked, and uh, you know, we're blatantly disregarding Him and His law. Uh, but we don't need to just point the finger to them out there because we can look at our own lives and every single day we're directly disobeying God in some way and yet God is so patient. But here's the deal, guys. God is also just and He won't let sin go unpunished. And that's a problem for all of us because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And, and the reason that I'm stressing this point that we have all sinned is because that's what makes verses 5 and 6 so incredible. It's what makes the gospel so amazing. The second thing I want to point out to you here is that Jesus died as a substitute for sinners. So you have sinned against God and Jesus died as a substitute for sinners. It says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. 
This passage is probably the clearest description of what is called substitutionary atonement in the entire Bible. Uh, substitutionary atonement, just to give you a brief definition, is when another dies in your place so that their blood can remove the death penalty from you for your sin. That's what substitutionary atonement is. And this was vividly portrayed for the people of Israel in the Old Testament in the Day of Atonement. Anybody ever heard of the Day of Atonement? See, I, now I know who finished their Bible reading plan and didn't quit before Leviticus 16 last year, right? you got to make it to Leviticus 16 to find the Day of Atonement, okay? It's some tough sledding to get there. I understand, I understand. So, so in Leviticus 16, I'll, I'll explain it to you real quick. Once a year, the high priest was to enter the Holy of Holies, uh, which was the innermost part of the tabernacle or the temple later when they built the temple where the presence of God was. And only one man once a year could enter, and that was the high priest. And before he entered, he had to offer sacrifices for himself, for his own sin, and for the sin of the people. And it was an annual reminder that God is holy and that sin separates us from God. And for a holy God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people, a sacrifice was needed. Atonement for sin was necessary. And Leviticus 16.21 describes how Aaron, the high priest, was to lay his hand on the head of a goat, confessing the sins of the people of Israel before the goat was sacrificed on the altar. And so as he did so, what was happening is that the sin of the nation was being transferred from the people to the goat as the substitute. But here's the deal. The blood of bulls and goats cannot ultimately remove the guilt of our sin. That's because we have sinned against an infinitely holy God and we need a perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice of infinite worth. So the Day of Atonement was never meant to be the solution. It was meant to point to the solution. Who's the solution? Jesus. Jesus is God's provision of the atoning sacrifice. That's why the last half of verse 6 says that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just as Aaron transferred the guilt of the people of Israel to the head of the animal on the cross, the guilt for our sin was transferred onto Jesus. Our iniquity was laid on him in our place. 1 Peter 2.24 says that he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. Do you realize that that's why Jesus was born? He was born so that He could go to the cross so that all of your sin could be laid on Him, transferred from you to Him so that you no longer have to bear it. You no longer have to bear the guilt. You no longer have to bear the shame. I mean, if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, why would you hold on to your sin a moment longer? Put it on Christ. Trust in Christ. He died for you and for me, for sinners like us, and He'll take all of that guilt right now. It's by faith alone. You don't have to try to clean yourself up first. You don't have to try to get your act together first. You don't have to get back in church first. No, that's, no. no. You, you receive His grace first, and then all of that comes after that. <laughs> after He bestows mercy and grace on you. But... The news gets better because there's one more thing I want to point out here in verses 4 to 6. Jesus' death also brings us peace with God and healing. 
Isaiah says that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, you are healed. Oh, it gets so much better. Let me just briefly explain how Jesus' death brings us peace with God and, and healing. That word chastisement is, uh, is punishment. It's another word for punishment. So the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion was put upon Jesus. So if you trust in Christ, then He stands in your place absorbing all of God's wrath for your sin. The big fancy theological word for that is called propitiation. He's a propitiation for our sin. He absorbs all of it. You see, apart from Jesus, you have no peace with God. He is your enemy and He will be your judge when you stand before Him. And you may stand before Him tonight. You don't know. Tonight may be the night that you draw your last breath and you find yourself in the presence of God. And if you don't have Christ, if you've never placed your faith and your trust in Him, you alone will stand by yourself and answer for your sin. And you will experience the full brunt of His righteous wrath. But you don't have to. You can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ who on that cross absorbed the wrath of God for His people. Which means that if you're a Christian, God is not angry with you anymore. You say, but pastor, you don't understand. I blew it so bad this week. I fell back into that sin that I keep falling back into. I lost it on my spouse. I lost it on my kids. I, I did this. I haven't read my Bible in a week and a half. I feel like I've just been complete. It doesn't matter. If you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, God is not angry with you for your sin. You're saved to the uttermost. That's good news. We're celebrating. And does that mean that we should continue in sin so that grace may abound? Like, okay, great. Jesus died for me, so now I can go live however I want. No, no. Because you see, here's the deal. A heart that, that has received the grace of God doesn't want to keep sinning against Jesus. Like, you're going to sin. I just got news for you. You're going to sin. I'm a pastor. I sin. Okay? Like, make no bones about it. I am a weak man that needs Jesus' grace every single day. Constantly. But the difference is, is that before I gave my life to Christ, I didn't care. <laughs> I, I, didn't feel, I didn't feel conviction over my sin. I felt fine continuing to walk in my sin. But now I don't want to walk in my sin. I want to honor Jesus. I want to, I want to surrender my life to Him. I want Him to be pleased with the meditation of my heart in the words of my mouth. And He helps us to do that. Jesus' death brings peace with God. But here it also brings healing. You remember how we talked a little bit earlier about how sin leads to brokenness in our lives? Anybody dealing with some brokenness in their lives? Maybe it's a result of your own sin. Maybe it's a result of other people's sin against you. Sin just messes stuff up. But can I tell you some good news? Jesus is making all things new. Now, that, that healing comes in stages. It starts in our hearts. Right? He, he removes the influence of sin like I just talked about and, and He begins to make us new from the inside out. That's what happens when we're born again. He gives us peace and He gives us joy even in the midst of the chaos. But a day is coming, make no mistake, where Jesus is coming back for the second time and He's going to get rid of the chaos all around us. He's going to reverse everything that sin has broken, everything that sin has marred, everything that sin has destroyed. He's going to make it all brand new. Everything sad will become untrue. 
in the new heavens and the new earth. And so that's why we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're waiting for that day. It's coming and it's coming soon. And how do we know all of this is real? How do we, how do we know this is going to happen? Because Jesus' tomb is empty. You see, if this message ended right here, and Jesus was just a great example who heroically died on a cross, it'd actually be kind of a tragedy. It wouldn't be very good news. But this is good news, and Jesus is able to do this saving, and He's able to do this delivering, He's able to do this renewing, because He's alive. He rose from the grave. You're not going to find His body. It's gone. It's ascended into heaven, and He's coming back again. This is the last point. Jesus is the vindicated servant. Look again at verses 10 to 12. It says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. So, what looked like the servant's greatest defeat actually became his greatest victory. And I want you to notice Jesus was not a helpless victim that was taken against his will to the cross, was he? Verse 12 says that he poured out his soul to death. And verse 7 describes how he was silent before his accusers, like a lamb that is silent before its shears. The cross was no accident. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, and it was the will of the Son to humbly submit to the Father's will in obedience. Jesus said in John 10, 17, one of my favorite passages, I, I, love, I just love the, 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 the sovereignty in this passage when he says, no one takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to lay it up again. I can just imagine Satan trembling in his boots as he heard the Son of God say that. Like, I can't even kill him. It's his will to go to the cross and then raise himself back up from the grave. Because of Jesus' humble obedience, because of this unmatched display of love and grace and dying for his enemies, the Father has exalted the Son. And he's exalted him, first of all, in his resurrection. You see in verse 10, it's this passage, it's kind of tricky, and it's prophetic and poetic language, but it says there, Isaiah says, he shall prolong his days. That's Isaiah's way of saying, he's going to rise from the dead. That's exactly what happened. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, and his resurrection shows that his offering for our sin is complete that God has accepted it, that it really is finished, that there's no more need for further payment for sin. Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. And his resurrection means that he's able to save us and give us eternal life. Now, Jesus has also been exalted with the spoils of a conquering king. In verse 12, it the Lord's speaking of the servant and He says, I will divide him a portion with the many and He will divide the spoil. So in ancient warfare, when a king conquered a city, he took possession of everything in it. It was the spoils of war. 
Well, the portion or the spoil that Jesus has plundered from the enemy is the elect. It's the people that he died for. We are the spoil. We are the gift that Jesus gets. By his blood, the Bible says, Jesus has ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And the redeemed will spend eternity in the new creation worshiping King Jesus to the glory of God the Father. There's just one more thing I want to point out to you before we finish. At the, That last line of verse 12 says that he makes intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus is alive right now in heaven. And it says that he, in, in the book of Hebrews, also tells us this, that he is interceding for us before the Father. We could spend all day here, to be honest. But believer, here's what I want you to consider. If you're discouraged this morning because you keep on sinning, if you are afraid that your faith is going to fail, if you are overwhelmed by sadness, what I want you to understand and see in this passage is that there is not a second that goes by that the risen Jesus Christ is not actively interceding for you on your behalf. There is not a single second that goes by that Jesus is not interceding on your behalf. Robert Murray McShane was a, was a pastor in Scotland in the 1800s and he, he wrote once, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. But guess what? He is praying for you. He is interceding for you right now. If you are in Christ, you are as secure as secure can be. Moment by moment, Jesus is applying His atoning blood to you. Ray, uh, Dane Ortland says it's as if He keeps hitting refresh, the refresh button on our atonement over and over and over again, constantly. Because He is the once for all sacrifice. There's no longer any need for a sacrifice for our sin. Jesus was born to die for sinners and He rose victoriously. That's what I want us to fix our eyes on this Christmas season. So if you're a follower of Christ, my closing exhortation to you is to linger on why Jesus came. You know, Jen and I lived in Canada for four years, about two hours from Niagara Falls. We were up there to plant the church. And, you know, we got to, the first couple of times we went to Niagara Falls, you know, it was just amazing. It was incredible. But we'd have mission teams that would come up and they would always want to go see Niagara Falls because, you know, many of them had never seen it. And it kind of got to the point where it's like, okay, yeah, like you guys go. We're probably just going to stay home. You know, it wasn't worth the hassle. You know, we didn't want to keep driving, making that two, two and a half hour drive all the way through Toronto to get there because it, it just becomes familiar, right? And the more familiar it becomes, the less amazing it feels. Does that mean that Niagara Falls is less amazing now than it was five years ago? Did Niagara Falls like get smaller? Did it lose its glory? No. What happened? Our perspective, right? It became familiar. And, you know, I'm afraid that sometimes that's what happens with the gospel. That's what happens with, with these amazing realities like he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Because there's no greater and more glorious reality in all of the universe. So ask God, God, open my eyes to behold the beauty of the gospel this Christmas season. Enlighten the eyes of my heart to know the hope to which I've been called. What are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of your power toward those who believe? 
And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to turn from self-help to Jesus this morning. He's the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way for you to be forgiven of your sin. There's no other way for you to have peace with God. There's no other way for you to have healing from all that sin has broken in your life. But if you'll turn to Jesus, He will do it. I'm going to pray, and then Keith is going to come back up, and we're going to sing one more song, uh, and then we'll uh, close out our time of worship this morning. God, thank You for the Gospel, and I thank You for Your Word. Jesus, we love You so much. We're so thankful uh, that You laid down Your life for us, that by faith alone all of our iniquity is laid upon You, and that You have risen from the dead. You're interceding for us, and we have peace with God. That's a reason to sing joy to the world this Christmas season. Would you put a new song in our hearts this Christmas season? Would we keep our eyes fixed on you, oh Jesus? We pray this in your name. Amen.